Blog Talk Radio. Firefly Willows LIDE presents Revolution, featuring your host, Heisey Lutner. Welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me once again for another episode of Revolution and for joining the Revolution with me, Hi C, your host. And we always start off each show with a roundtable discussion. And this month I am joined by one of my regular co-hosts, Mildred Lynn McDonald. Good morning, Hi C. As well as a special guest contributor to this roundtable discussion, uh, Fred Isom from St. Louis, who is a life coach and intuitive consultant. Welcome and thank you for joining us for this, Fred. Thank you for having me, Hi C. It's a pleasure. And the topic I wanted to bring to the table today is one that when I when I first saw this uh, title of something, it just intrigued me because I had never really thought about the difference, um, and that is what it means to be nice versus to be kind. What is the difference between niceness and kindness? And so to explore this, I thought I would put a couple of questions out there and just see what our thoughts are, how we feel about what each of these represent. Um, So the first thing that I wanted to just explore is that question. When you think of niceness or being nice and kindness or being kind, what to you is the difference between those two? Hi, see, first of all, I want to compliment you on your topic because I had never really thought about the difference, if there was even a difference between niceness and kindness. So thank you for that. For me, when I think about niceness, it has social or cultural connotations. And when I think about kindness, it seems to be something that goes deeper and comes from my heart. So that's where I find vibrationally the differences between niceness and kindness. I would say the difference between the two words for me is rather minimal, although distinct. Um, With niceness, it is my or anyone else's ability to give someone a greeting with a smile on their face or to shake someone's hand um, with, or, you know, to, you know, ask them how they're doing for the day or, you know, if, you know, if all is okay, if someone is being kind and especially for me, it's going that extra step to actually do something with that positive energy. Am I going to offer assistance to someone? Am I going to engage them in a conversation um, you know, am I contributing to someone's life in a positive way? That's that's the extra step with kindness for me. Yeah, and I think that something that Mildred was saying made me think too that niceness can be cultural based or society based, whereas kindness is more universal based. I think that we all have the capacity for kindness. It's a universal trait that we can both be and recognize in others. I think niceness 
you know, there there can be differences in cultures and societies as to what constitutes being nice. Uh, you know, in, in a simple example, like in in American culture, if you're sitting at the dinner table at somebody's house that made a meal for you, and you you burp really loudly, that's considered rude. Whereas there are other cultures where doing so is actually a compliment because it's uh, it's a sign of enjoyment of the meal that someone had prepared. So I think that niceness can be very can uh, be variable based on cultural context and that kind of thing. Whereas kindness is simply kindness. So if I use the same example. Kindness is the fact that someone else went to the effort to prepare a meal for somebody else. That's the kindness aspect. The niceness aspect is perhaps in the way that someone expresses their enjoyment or gratitude of that. Um, and so it, I think also for me the difference is kindness is something, like Fred was saying, kindness is something that comes from the internal place, and niceness is perhaps the act. You don't have to necessarily do one or the other, but kindness is the intention. Kindness says I come at this from a place of understanding, support, wanting to help, um, acceptance, etc., Niceness, kindness never has an agenda or an ulterior motive. And niceness can have an ulterior motive because it can be used to get something or manipulate someone or something in some way, whereas kindness, I don't think, can. So thinking about just our own definitions of, of the difference between those two things, how is it that you can tell, or as Mildred would love to, to say, she loves to, to think of, how is it that you feel when you are being nice <laughs> versus being kind? Oh, what, what an introduction, Hoxie. <laughs> you were just begging for me to answer the question, right? <laughs> I find, in terms of feeling nice, I would have to say, if I was being honest, when I'm being nice, I'm in my head. So riding on the cultural or, or social connotations there, nice is something that I've learned. It's something that's acceptable. It's something that I would probably use in a situation where energy was in discord to try to bring some harmony. Now, being kind, that's a totally different animal. And I'd like to give you a little story. I come from an island on Nova Scotia in Canada. It's called Cape Breton Island. And when people ask me about Cape Breton, what's it like? I often say, well, in Cape Breton, the currency is kindness, not money. And then people would ask me, well, what do you mean? And I go about talking about Cape Breton and the people of Cape Breton and their kindness in the context that they truly understand from their heart what a person needs or desires at a given time. And then from their hearts, they try to meet that need. Now, the comical part is because the people are so kind on the island, you are bombarded with things that you might need, whether it's food, whether it's a blanket, whether it's a contact, whether it's a drive somewhere. And the magical thing is that it comes from the harsh. And the word nice 
never comes into it. So even though there's a social culture there and people in Cape Breton are known as being very nice people, what goes above and beyond that is the word that people usually use is kind, how kind this person is or how kind the people of the island are. So that's that's my frame of reference for kindness versus nice. I will certainly echo the sentiment with uh, kindness and niceness. Uh, For me, when I'm being nice, it is during an introduction and getting to know someone or catching up with someone who I've not seen for quite some time and having a, you know, just carrying on a little bit of a conversation to catch up, Um, you know, little, just little gestures like that that are, you know, very social based. Um, Whenever it comes to actual kindness, it is for me digging deeper whenever there is somebody around me who is, you know, is in need or even if they aren't in need and I feel motivated to do something for them uh, that I know would either bring a smile to their face or even ease, you know, a burden or a sadness in their life. You know, there is, there's the difference between being nice to call someone on the phone just to chat, see how they're doing. And then there's the kindness factor of, you've just had a loss in your life or you're not feeling well and I've prepared, you know, a, a dish of food for you or I'm happy to run to the store for you and, and you know, pick up some groceries and bring them to you so that you don't have to worry about certain tasks that you're, you know, that you're distracted from right now. Uh, I think there's, I think there can be very distinctive differences between being nice and being kind in that way. And I think for me, it basically boils down to, it, do I have a desire to do this? Is this something I want to do? Or is it something that I feel that I'm supposed to do or that I should do? And kindness comes from that place of want or desire. It says, this this is a compulsion coming from within me to do this for the other person. Niceness Sometimes, not all of the time, but I think niceness is more akin to this is what I'm supposed to do in this situation. You know, do do I have kindness? Is I want I send a a thank you note to someone you know that I handwrite for something. Niceness is I send a thank you note because I'm supposed to within a week simply because somebody did something. So that to me is the difference of how it can feel uh, is kindness is it's coming from me like I really have this desire to do this whereas niceness is often more based in this is what I know I'm supposed to do or what the the rules of society say to do Um, so uh, thinking of that is there a time and a place for being nice rather than being kind or vice versa is there a time and a place for being kind rather than nice well, hi, see, as usual, I think there's room for both at the table. And when you were talking about niceness and kindness, what was coming into me is vulnerability. And somehow when I'm thinking of niceness, it doesn't include me opening myself to another person, being vulnerable. I can quite easily be nice and pleasant and socially appropriate, although you probably find that hard to believe, behave myself on many occasions. When I'm moving into the arena of kindness, that is a whole different kettle of fish. And innately, I would have to be vulnerable, 
open myself up to feeling empathetic about the situation the other person is in and able to access my heart energy to provide a kindness. And the other part of it is that I would have to have a certain depth of understanding of the person or the situation to extend kindness, at least from my perspective. But to answer your question, I do see room at the table for both of them. I think the important thing is to understand, am I being nice or am I being kind or am I being both? I actually think that's a rather brilliant answer and I don't actually have much more to add on to that. (laughs) I'm good for my brilliant answers. (laughs) That's actually really good. (laughs) Well, and and I think that there is, uh, uh, one could hope that kindness is always infusing everything. But I think that sometimes we do have to choose. So for me, so let's say that someone has just had someone who died. And the difference between niceness and kindness, in my view, is that niceness would be somebody saying, uh, oh, I need to go to the store and get a condolence card to send. Kindness would be saying, I'm going to go over there and see if they need anything, even if they just need me to sit there and hold their hand while they cry. Yeah. However, going over there and being there may not be the most helpful thing in that moment. Maybe they need some time alone. So doing the nice thing by sending a card to let them know you're being thought of but not feeling as if we have to impose upon their space, even though we have that desire, because that might be the the kinder thing to do. Kindness says, I'm also willing to wait until I see that either there is an opening or a request um, for it to be expressed, rather than it being something I do because I think this is what the other person needs, therefore I'm going to do it without paying attention to what they may be saying or really needing. So a, a nice a gesture of niceness, I think, should be infused with kindness because sending the condolence card can still come from a place of kindness. But I think that we have to be cognizant of are we being nice as a way to avoid being kind? Because somebody may send a condolence card because they don't feel comfortable sitting with somebody when they cry. But that would be the kinder thing to do is to set, set aside what you were going to do in that afternoon and go over and be with that person. I see. What about, and I'm referring to the article that you referenced the difference between being nice and being kind. What about when people are overly nice? They're nice, oozing niceness at the expense of their life force energy. Any thoughts on that? Fred, what do you have to say about being overly nice? Oh, goodness. What do I have to say about being overly nice? Um, you know, I will say, you know, for myself, um, being a more of an introverted person, when someone is approaching me and, as we've just said, oozing the nice, um, sometimes that oozement can just literally pour <laughs> into my comfort zone. And while they are very well-intentioned, I think, you know, they're they're unconscious of the fact that through their own wanting, you know, through their own desire of wanting to express warmth and pleasantness toward me, it's actually causing me harm and coming into my space and making me feel smothered. 
And I think that there's a way to compensate for the, uh, you know, I guess we could possibly say the darker side of being nice when someone is, you know, oozing the niceness out by being equally nice to them by greeting, you know, them with a smile. Oh, nice. You know, how lovely to see you. Thank you so much, et cetera, et cetera. And through, through body language and your own, you know, your own complimentary nice words, getting yourself out of that situation. Because that's what I would do. <laughs> well, and I think that someone being overly nice is usually an indication of ego or a lack of self-worth because it's an attempt to use niceness to mm-hmm. gain validation or acceptance. And you know and then of course you have like fred said the dark side of niceness is when people use niceness to manipulate other people it's like being nice because we think it's going to get us something uh in some way you know being being nice to the person who happens to be the recruiter at the company i want to get a job at otherwise i would never give them the time of day you know whereas kindness never has an agenda uh and kindness never needs to be validated Mm. because it comes from that deeper place that simply says, I have this desire to do this. And whether it's even noticed or not, whether it is reciprocated or not, it doesn't matter because I'm simply doing it from that place. Whereas niceness, and I think when people are overly nice, it tends to start to show it's coming from a place that isn't as genuine um, as where kindness comes from. Hopefully that answered your question, Mildred. It did. Thank you. <laughs> so the the final question I want to end our conversation with is if we think about kindness in particular, um, what would be a suggestion for that you would offer other people perhaps something you've used it for yourself what would be a a suggestion that you would offer about how to cultivate kindness in ourselves not just how to be nicer but how to cultivate kindness well hi C in terms of cultivating kindness what comes to me is as I said before knowing the difference between kindness and niceness, which is all new to me. I had them both under the umbrella of pleasant until I started to explore them, thanks to you. But knowing yourself and being able to put yourself in the other person's shoes, and I know that sounds like a cliche, but it's a cliche, it's around because it's a universal truth, to be able to have that ability to put yourself in the other person's shoes and then bring your energy and bring yourself to neutral, to a centeredness, and don't judge. And I think that if you're in that arena, it lets your heart open up and you will naturally know how to extend a kindness. And I also feel, I know on Oprah or whatever they say, do a, an invisible kindness every day or something like that. I Excuse me if I'm not getting it right, but the idea or the intent is a random kind, kindness, random acts, acts of random kindness. I guess it took me a long time to get there, but I finally got there. So 
I'm, I'm, I wanted to throw that back at, at you and also to find out what Fred was thinking. If you're doing it, a random act of kindness, is are you really doing a random act of niceness rather than kindness? If that just came up for me. Yeah, that's actually a very good question. Um, as far as cu- cultivating kindness within ourselves, with, you know, within ourselves is concerned, for me, I've had to learn that over time, cultivating kindness comes from a place of whenever I see someone else in need in a situation, you know, how would I want to be approached in that situation? Because I've been approached approached by plenty of other people in situations when I wasn't ready to receive kindness. And I think part of cultivating kindness is recognizing within other people when they're in need and when they're ready to receive that and the very act of digging with digging deep within myself because I want to offer that person kindness cultivates it within me by recognizing that someone outside of me is in need of something. And um, to draw back on the point that you had just mentioned, Mildred, with the giving of yourself so much, is it actually you know, is it actually drifting more toward an excess of niceness rather than actually giving from the foundation of kindness? And I think that, you know, I mentioned the the darker side of niceness earlier. I think that might actually be, you know, akin to the darker side of kindness. Whenever you whenever you're giving so much of yourself to other people just because you can. Is it actually a gesture that you're seeing the other person being ready to receive and make their life happier? Or is it just all about the person who's giving needing to fluff themselves up more to be happier? Because, you know, is it potentially a comp- an act of compensation for something? Yeah, I think that the um, the random acts of kindness, it's, it's not going to be, it's only, I think it only slips into niceness when we do it needing some sort of um, acknowledgement or recognition for it. Mm. And, you know, cultivating kindness is a sense of, well, ultimately it goes back to a word that Mildred used earlier in our conversation. I think ultimately it's the willingness to be vulnerable because niceness is often used as a defense mechanism or as a barrier. And, you know, it's it's smiling, I'll, I'll smile, I'll give you a smile rather than saying what I'm really thinking. Or I will be nice as a way to uh, get out of something. Whereas kindness, if we cultivate that, so if I give us, you know, if somebody gives a smile rather than if somebody says, you know, what do you think of this outfit? And somebody gives a smile, um as a way to avoid having to say what they're really thinking about that outfit. Kindness would find something genuine to actually compliment. Not thinking that, well, the 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 if I spoke the truth, I would say that that looks horrible on you. But instead, I'll, I'll be nice and I'll give you a smile and not say anything. Kindness would find something to genuinely compliment. So for me, cultivating kindness is, on one hand, that vulnerability, because it says I have to open myself up to seeing what somebody else truly needs 
or allowing others to ask for that without any sort of expectation, well, without any judgment around that. But kindness also is a sense of being genuine and truly seeing the other person and therefore being able to recognize what might be truly best and needed by them and whether that's doing something for them or knowing not to be in their space like you were talking about Fred so that to me has been the the process of cultivating kindness is that that vulnerability to do without the need for anything coming back you know if you do something and check your email every 10 minutes waiting for the thank you I would question about is that coming from a place of kindness or were you trying to do a nice gesture hoping to look good in someone's eyes or receive some sort of reciprocation or validation as a result of doing that? And cultivating kindness says that I don't seek or need that. I simply do it and allow it to be what it is. And that's what I think a random act of kindness is as well, is that idea of just doing something for the sake of doing it without any need, expectation, requirement around anything to come back as a result of it. Any other thoughts as we close the conversation? Yeah, thank you, Kaisi. You really clarif- You did a really good job clarifying that. Thank you. Well, I would like to thank both Mildred Lynn and Fred for being so kind to join me here at this roundtable discussion today. And I will encourage you to stay tuned for the rest of the show. Of course, you always have the chance to get a reading a little later if you would like to connect in from the show page or call 646-716-5510. You can do so in order to get into the queue for that. And we will be right back with the rest of this month's Revolution. mother protects with her life her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, upward to the skies and downward to the depths, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, the great and the mighty, seen and unseen, the male and female, may they all be at ease, the young and old. The beings of the earth, and the air, and the waters, living near and far away, 
May all beings be at ease. May they all be happy. Listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L I V E. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Revolution with High C. My revolutionary guest this month is internationally noted iconographer, craftsman, spiritual teacher, and human rights advocate, Patamasu Nofra Ua. Born in San Diego, California into a family of artists, Patamasu began at an early age to receive instruction in figure studies, watercolor techniques, and old-world oil painting methods from his father, an accomplished portrait and landscape painter. 
The Tamas whose extensive training in the fine arts is omnipresent in his vocation as an iconographer, creating devotional panels of deities from the Egyptian and Near Eastern religious traditions in watercolor, gold, and semi-precious stones. At the age of six, the Tamasu began what has evolved into a lifelong obsession with the civilization, art, and religious practices of the ancient Egyptians. Even at his tender age of six, the boy astonished and perhaps not a little horrified his parents when he declared that he had lived as a priest in ancient Egypt and was called to worship its gods. By the time he entered puberty, the Tamasu had taught himself to read and write the ancient Egyptian hieroglyph language and could recite the major chapters of the Book of the Dead by heart. The Tamasu Nofra'u'a'a is an ordained priest of the California Temple of Isis, a state and federally registered spiritual organization dedicated to the cultivation of the sacred feminine embodied in the Egyptian mother goddess Isis. He is also a priest hierophant of the International Fellowship of Isis, a multicultural, multi-ethnic, and multi-religious community celebrating the ancient wisdom paths of the goddess today. Tamasu has been a writer of poetry and prose from his youngest years, regarding these not as a hobby or intellectual pastime, but rather as a means of emotional release and survival. His writing carries the reader on a journey from the darkness of entrapment to spiritual illumination. He is the author of a forthcoming book of poetry titled, I Could Wring That Sparrow's Neck, Verses on Love, Death, and Immortality, to be released by Maverick Reed. To learn more about Patamasu and his work, you are invited to visit his official website and blog at www.iconsofkemet.com, which is I-C-O-N-S-O-F-K-M-T.com and his blog at www.iconsofkemet, which is I-C-O-N-S-O-F-K-E-M-E-T dot blogspot dot com. So please join me in welcoming to the show today, revolutionary guest, iconographer Pata Masu Nofra Ua. And welcome to the show, Patamasu. Thank you so much for being willing to join us here today and to really illuminate us about both the art that you create as well as its interrelatedness to your spirituality. So thank you very much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an, it's an honor to share with you and uh, with your audience. So the, uh, well, your your website the is called Icons of Kemet, yes. and that is in reference, of course, to the name for ancient Egypt. And yes. um, I know that that 
has a significant uh, role or, or a significance in terms of referring to your spiritual journey and practice. Uh, and we will get there momentarily. But first, I wanted to hear about your the art that you do and kind of what your artistic journey has been, how you discovered art and how you've come to do the art that you do today. That is a very involved question. I will do my best to, to answer that um, as fully as I can. Um, I'd like to say, actually, that that my art is an expression of my spiritual practice and my religion. I know that a lot of people have problems with the word religion, especially when it's applied to what the ancient Egyptians believed in practice. Let me clarify that when I use the term religion, as well as the term spirituality, they're two separate things. My definition of religion is the tools, the rites, the rituals, the prayers, the texts that go with any system of belief. Spirituality is the feeling that there is something much deeper and richer to creation and to life than the mere physical. Uh, organized religion is completely separate from those. I believe very much in religion, and I believe very much in spirituality. I do not believe in organized religion necessarily. Um, but my point being that my art is cannot be separate separated from spirituality and religion. My art is entirely spiritual and entirely cultic or religious, and it's very important to me that people understand that. Um, art can be seen as decorative. Art can be seen as a tool of expressing an individual artist's ex experience as a human being, relating to our world, relating to our own personal feelings of our life in relationship with other lives, with politics. All these things uh, come into play with modern artists. They're not part of my work. My work is entirely cultic. Uh, when I say that, I mean that my work reflects a tradition of directly connecting with gods and goddesses of their worship, prayer, meditation, of service. So my icons are not art in the contemporary sense of that word. They're not an expression of my own ego. They're not an expression of my own experience of myself as a modern artist, as in that modern artists, um, any modern artist who uses their art to show this is me, this is who I am, and this is how I'm reacting to my world. My icons aren't about that. Uh, the only thing that you can learn about Patama Sue as, as a person, as an individual, by looking at my work is obviously that I'm connected with my subjects. Obviously, when you look at my work, you can tell by the way it's crafted that I have a direct relationship with the subject matter that I'm, that I'm portraying, uh, that I have a great deal of involvement in that subject matter. But other than that, there is nothing about me as an, as an egoistic personality that you can learn from my work. So that's very different than modern art, where modern artists use art as a way of showing themselves in the world, reacting to everything they experience. My icons are, are 
a direct expression of my experience of a deity, whatever god or goddess that I am I am painting. So I, I wanted to clarify that. I do that a lot because people will say, oh, your art is so beautiful. I love your Egyptian art. I love your artwork. And I, I, those are compliments. But I have to kind of go on an aside with these people and say, well, my icons are not art. I don't regard them as artwork. Um, they're not decorative. Uh, people feel that they're decorative. People feel they're beautiful. Um, and they may aesthetically be beautiful, but they are not decorative. They're not meant to hang on a wall and look at as pretty objects uh, the way so much art is. Um, modern art is something that we use to decorate our lives. Uh, we put in our homes and, and it's beautiful to look at. But very rarely do we ever interact with it. Um, my icons are functional pieces. They're intended to be part of a cult. They're intended to be part of a service and a direct way of connecting with the god or goddess they represent through offerings, uh, through prayers, through chants, through the daily ritual. Um, my original icons, most of them are owned by Galina Kraskova of House Sankofa. Uh, Galina Kraskova is, is a very well-known um, uh, author and teacher in the heathen uh, and pagan communities, um, and she's commissioned most of my icons. Well, all of the ones that she has were commissioned as cult objects. So she has um, established for them an actual cultic service uh, where her house devotees, priests and priestesses actually have daily rituals for my icons. They're part of cultic service. And that that is very much how icons should be used. My original icons are not intended to be used as display pieces or as just neat Egyptian artwork for people who like ancient Egypt. That's why I have the prints, which I sell uh, for people who want to have access to my work but can't afford the originals because the originals are, are grossly expensive to commission uh, because the materials that I work with and the time that, that it takes to, to do them. Um, and uh, they are not uh, sold to individuals who will use them for other than cultic use. So I wanted to clarify all this so that, that listeners could understand the difference between art, an art piece, and an icon. So I don't refer to what I do as art or artwork, um, and I don't consider myself an artist. I consider myself an iconographer, a creator of icons. So that is very important to me that people understand. And then that's not to demean art or artwork or artist, because I am also an artist. I also paint things that are artwork that are not iconographic in the same way that my comedic or Egyptian icons are. So I do other artwork. Um, most people don't see that artwork because I actually don't show it. I do personal artwork that it, that is only for myself. That is not necessarily, it's not cultic, it's not spiritual as far as connected with the worship of deities. And um, Art is very important to me, the study of art and the practice of art as just art for its own sake. Um, hopefully I've answered part of your question. Did you also ask me, I guess you wanted me to talk about, did you want me to talk about how I came to art and, and how I 
came to be doing what I'm doing, that was also part of your question, correct? Well, yes, especially to to understand how you – did you originally want to pursue being an artist and then moved into being an iconographer, or was it always about being an iconographer and then studying or learning art in order to be able to do that? Um, I grew up in a very artistic household. Uh, my, my father um, – a very accomplished oil painter and landscape artist in watercolor and oils. Um, my father received his his degree in humanities and fine arts from San Diego State University, and he was always studying art and art history in relation to that. But my brother, I have a I have a brother who's five years younger, and he's also a painter. He's a very accomplished painter, uh, and him and I grew up learning art from my father. So even before I really learned to, to the alphabet and, and, and learned uh, how to read and write, my father was encouraging me and my brother uh, to take up painting and to learn art. So when I first came to art, my interest in art was for its own sake. It was from the standpoint of, of learning to paint, watercolor painting, a landscape painting, which my father uh, was was very keen on 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 teaching me, but my father began teaching my my brother and I, but teaching me um, not modern art instead of Picasso and and modern art. My father was teaching us uh, the old artists: uh, Titian, Vermeer, Caravaggio, uh, Michelangelo, Leonardo, um, and the artists of, of the Renaissance, and that was very important to my father. My father actually hated modern art. He really thought it was garbage. Now, I think something very differently about modern art, but my father, um, he was not into modern art. He really was very old school. Uh, he taught me sculpture. He taught me human anatomy, how to draw from life. That was also a, a very important part of, of growing up. Um I myself was always very interested in artists of different time periods. Uh, Frida Kahlo, uh, you're probably familiar with Frida Kahlo's work. Uh, Frida Kahlo was was very important to me growing up. I, I studied um, her work, and it had an effect on me because I always felt that Frida Kahlo's work was iconographic. Um, I, I felt that Frida Kahlo painted her own passion, and I mean that in a religious sense almost. That Frida Kahlo's work is 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 they're almost uh, her paintings are icons but personal icons creating herself as is almost a religious figure to show these tragedies that took place in her life uh also mark rothko uh the very famous uh modern artist uh, who died in 1970 um mark rothko i studied his work um even though my father hated him i i studied his work growing up Mark Rothko believed in the spiritual and religious, almost uh, quality of pure color for its own sake, and that was uh, affected me as well as Henri Matisse and his use of color. So I really grew up in a very artistic household, studying different artists, studying painting. I didn't start off wanting to become an iconographer. I, I didn't understand what that would have meant. Although I grew up in a very religious household. Uh, where I grew up in a in a, a 
a evangelical uh, Christian household, and um, religion was something that predominated every every aspect of my life growing up. And my father was very interested in in how artists had portrayed biblical scenes and and the life of Christ and how art could be used to bolster uh, the truth of the Gospels, how different artists have done that. So that was something that I was raised with. And I guess when I would see images of the crucifixion or the Madonna, I, I was very taken by those images, especially images of the crucifixion. Um, I used to have my father actually draw me or paint me over and over and over again images of the crucifixion because for me, I felt that that images of the crucifixion were the strongest tool um, that, that Christianity had for conveying its message. And there was something about the way artists had portrayed the crucifixion that struck me at a very young age. So I became very obsessed with that image. Um, but from a very young age, I, I also uh, felt that Christianity was not not my path. Um, and I really discovered the ancient Egyptian religion um, and metaphysical principles, what some people might call new age principles at a very young age. I think I was six years old, actually, when I started to um, actually pray to Egyptian deities. Um, but I would say that my my introduction to Christian iconography was sort of a starting point where I realized what icons could do and what they could be. And it was really, uh, I studied art all through, through grade school, through high school, and then in college, um, painting was my major, drawing from life, and... I continue to study, and to this day, continue to study painting and painting techniques. It never stops for me. But um, my upbringing in the arts um, and my father's tutelage, he taught my brother and I how to mix paints the old-fashioned way, how to make brushes, um, how to stretch canvas, uh, how to paint from nude models. So art was just... It was something that uh, I was obsessed with always. I always wanted to be an artist. Um, becoming an iconographer actually is not something that I consciously said, this is what I want to do with my life. Actually, until I was, um, until actually I was, I was uh, 30 years old, I, I didn't, consciously say, okay, I'm an iconographer and this is what I choose to do. This is what I want to do until I was about 30. Um, even though in my, my high school days, I was already painting Egyptian deities in watercolor and developing a style that actually is not too dissimilar from what I'm doing now. Um, so I guess that's, you know, that's the best way for me to answer. Hopefully I've answered that portion of your question. Well, and, and there's no way to not um, remark on the beauty of the pieces that you create, because 
the materials that you use are just so amazing, especially to see in person. Um, mm. And so maybe can you just talk a little bit about, you know, you don't just work in, say, watercolor or oils. You bring oh, no. a lot more into the icons that you create. So can you talk a bit about the different materials and mediums and things that you employ? Absolutely. Um, materials are, are are very important to any artist, no matter what branch you're working in, knowing your materials, being confident in your materials and understanding how can I use this material or that medium to best express what it is I need to express? Um, icons, in my opinion, from also studying every branch of iconography, I've studied uh, Buddhist iconography, I've studied Russian Orthodox iconography, um, I've studied um, Greek Orthodox icons, um, and Hindu icons as well. All of these schools of iconographic thought place materials as primary Precious materials must be used. Um, one cannot create an icon from unprecious materials, meaning that gold must be used, silver, copper, semi-precious stones, precious stones, as well as paints that are made out of natural pigments. Um, it's very important in my work that I use earth-based pigments. I use real lapis lazuli. I use jade stone. I use all earth-based uh, pigments um, that are hand-ground. I use, and, and the, the, med the, the medium that's used in with them is linseed oil. Um, I use very pure ingredients. It's very important to me because I try to be authentic to the spirit of how the ancient Egyptians worked. Uh, the ancient Egyptians, of course, had only natural materials at their disposal, um, and materials are very important to them. When the Egyptians made cult images, they used lapis lazuli, they used carnelian, they used turquoise, they used gold. Uh, when they used wood, it was the best kind of wood um, if it was for a three-dimensional cult image. Uh, when the Egyptians created bas reliefs, they did inlay them. It is known that they did use gold, they did use faience they actually did apply other things to the surface. We know this from various temples where we can see that that was done. Uh, so my icons use the most precious and expensive materials that an artist can work with. I use very pure 22 karat gold. Um, I use a German gold leaf, um, which, is, which is the highest concentration of gold that an iconographer can use. Um, I do use silver. Um, as well as, as copper um, in some of my icons. Um, and I use a lot of lapis lazuli, which is grossly expensive. Uh, it's the most expensive pigment that I use. And um, that is, is absolutely because the materials are associated magically with different deities in the Egyptian pantheon. So magically, uh, an occult image or an icon has to function on that level where you're inviting the deity to take possession of, of this, this work uh, to animate it. So you want to use materials that are very precious. So I also use uh, Austrian crystal by uh, Swarovski company. Um, the Egyptians, of course, did not have that kind of crystal, uh, but in their jewelry, we do have amulets that are made out of rock crystal. So, I try very hard 
even if I'm using materials that aren't exactly what the Egyptians use, I try very hard to keep it as traditionally oriented as I can. We do have materials the Egyptians didn't have. Uh, so I do avail myself of those as well. But the goal is always that the icon should be precious, uh, that the material should be the highest quality. I use the, the highest quality brushes. I don't use synthetic brushes in my work. This might bother some people who have a problem with animal products, but um, I try to stay away from synthetic products because it's just very important to me to be traditional. The process that I create the icons is also holy. I use prayers. I go through entire regiment of chanting and, and prayers and uh, sacred activities as I'm creating icons. I mean, there's, there's the creation of my icons is very, very complex. And um, each piece is about 2,000 hours it takes me to, to do. Um, that includes because I have to do prayers and rituals. Um, but anyways, that, that's to answer the materials. Uh, oh, I also use uh, semi-precious and precious stones. I use, um, I use cabochons, which are highly polished gemstones in lapis lazuli, turquoise, carnelian, jade stone. I've used uh, Indian emeralds, uh, Indian sapphires, as well as rubies. Um, I will be using diamonds. Uh, in, in some of my upcoming pieces, um, that's getting very expensive, but I'm actually getting more and more expensive uh, because the gods demand more. Um, just when you think you've arrived at, a, at, at perfection, the gods will always say, okay, I want more. Um, and we should always give the things the gods ask for. <laughs> well, and you're also making something that isn't just I need something to put on my living room wall for a couple of years, and then I'm going to okay. change that out. So using these kind of materials, it also means that those pieces have uh, the ability to last a much longer period of time without deteriorating or fading or that kind of thing, I would assume. Absolutely. I, that, thank you for bringing that up. Um, all of the pigments that I use are what they call light fast, uh, they, which means that they withstand um, ultraviolet light to a very high degree. Um, unless my icons are set on fire or you throw them in the ocean um, or take a sledgehammer to them, um, they are impervious to change. Um, all of my icons, I do not sell unframed icon panels. That's because all of the materials that touch an icon have to be blessed. Uh, my framers um, go through a very strict program. Um, They're not allowed to touch the icons um, without having washed their hands, without wearing gloves, without being pure. Um, my, my framer um, has actually been blessed by me and sanctified by me in order to be able to touch my icons. So he is a holy person. Um, and all of the materials that are used to frame my icons are the same that are used by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They're used by any museum. They are um, museum archival conservation quality. So this is not something that I go to Aaron Brothers Art Mart or whatever and get done. I use the most expensive uh, glass, which is actually a glass that is uh, um, almost 100% ultraviolet reflective. Um, it also is a completely reflected, non-reflective surface. So actually, when you look at the icon, it does not look like it has a pane of glass in front of it, but it does. Um, and that is so that uh, the incense and candle smoke 
because my icons are all installed in temples. Um, so the icon is sealed uh, so that it cannot, the, uh, it, it is impervious to um, conditions around it. So actually, my icons are the highest quality. They, they actually should last for, uh, again, I mean, they really, they really are something that is of a quality that you only find in museum exhibitions where they hermetically seal things. Um, and they're in the finest materials. So my icons, um, they will not deteriorate. Uh, they should last for generations. And so maybe we can go back to something you brought up, which is the process. Because, you know, oftentimes we hear artists who will talk about when they're creating their art, they get, you know, they're in the zone or they kind of lose sense of time and space or, you know, whatever. Um, do you find that there is a similar kind of experience for you or is there a different kind of experience and process that you go through doing this kind of work versus someone who is doing more traditional type of art versus iconography? Um, iconography and, and I'm speaking only for myself, although I can say from having spoken to iconographers in different traditions, I would say this does hold true for, for other traditions. Um, but the tradition that I work within, my understanding is that an iconographer must first be a sacrosanct person. They must be a holy person. And I'm not saying, oh, I'm holy, I'm special. Um, what I mean by that is in the Kemetic or ancient Egyptian tradition, uh, which I work in, um, we know that artisans were apt to call themselves priests of Ptah. In fact, the high priest of Ptah was called the Werkher of Hemu, which means the great director of craftsmen, um, associating himself with Ptah as the supreme craftsman. Images in the Egyptian tradition are holy within themselves. You are mimicking Ptah. You are mimicking the creator of the gods in the universe. In my estimation, a person who creates icons must be in a state of purity. They must be ritually pure. Their mind must be pure. It must be wiped clean of anything that is opposed to what the gods say is pure. That person must also lead a lifestyle that is also pure. Um, and for the time while that person is creating the icon, you must not come into contact with things that, that the gods regard as impure. Uh, it means that a person, the iconographer must have a, a, a because the, the actual skill, any artist who has a significant training or, or enough training can do what I do. I'm not devaluing what I do, but I'm just saying any trained artist who's worked in watercolor and gold, who's done gilding, who's done that, and who knows how to draw, who knows how to do iconography, they could do what I do. But the one thing that they couldn't do is create an icon that is an actual living conduit of the deity. For that to take place, that person must be consecrated. They must be sacred, um, which is why in ancient Egypt, artisans created cult images were, were said to be priests of Ptah. They were ordained individuals who were sanctified to create an image that was the Ba, the, the manifestation of the deity. Cult images in ancient Egypt were called the Ba, the manifestation, or the Sekhem, which means the power. And a person who, who creates such an image must themselves be 
touched directly by the Ba, the, the manifestation of the deity, and by the Sekhem, the power of the deity. I am an ordained priest. Um, I'm not only ordained uh, to Ptah, but I'm also ordained but, uh, to Sekhmet as well as to the goddess Aset or Isis. Uh, that's legally as well as just in spirit. So I have legal ordinations as well as spiritual ordinations in order to do what I do. My iconography is a direct manifestation of my spiritual practice. Um, it is done as a religious act. It is not done as an act of just expressing myself, as I've stated earlier. So my process um, begins with purification. Uh, when Before I sit down to paint, I, I take a special bath um, in natronified water or a shower in which while I'm showering, I chew uh, balls of natron, which are actually local to, uh, I live near the Bonneville Salt Flats. And I wrote a blog recently about this, about actually we have uh, the salt flats near us, so we have our own source of natron. I chew natron while I'm in the shower, or if I take a bath, I actually put natron pellets in the bath. Um, there are texts from the pyramid text as well as from the daily cult ritual that I chant uh, while I'm in the bath. Um, I wear clothing that's specially blessed. Um, in, in, in the shrines in order to take on myself the mantle of the nature or the deity. Um, offerings are then made of incense as well as different uh, fruit and food offerings. The deity is asked to possess me or to possess my hands, whichever deity as well as the god Ptah. Um, water is then sprinkled before Imhotep and Jehudi or Thoth, uh, which is done whenever a scribe or an artisan in the Egyptian tradition sits down, you always sprinkle a few drops of water in front of Imhotep as well as to Jehudi. Uh, and I say prayers to those deities. Um, and then when I, I sit down to work, the water that I use in the watercolor has been consecrated uh, in front of the, the household gods, all of our shrine, our shrines and our, our deities, uh, statues are cult statues. The little vessel of water which I use is placed in front of those, and the deities are asked to come into that water. So the water I use is holy. The brushes have been blessed. Um, I then have to get myself into a state of being omnipresent, of also being completely single-pointedly present in that moment. Now, I don't mix my spiritual practices. I'm a comedic reconstructionist, and I want to make that clear because I have been accused by certain people of, oh, that I'm really a Tibetan Buddhist using ancient Egyptian, you know, spirituality, mixing it up. I'm New Age. I'm really this, that, and the other thing. I am initiated in different traditions. It is true. But I don't blend those traditions together. When I'm doing comedic activities, I only use comedic practices and prayers. And I have other pantheons that I work in. Um, I was initiated personally by His Holiness, the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet, in the Tibetan tradition in various aspects. And I do have a Tibetan practice, but that is completely separate from my comedic practice. However, I wanted to bring that up because I have received training by His Holiness, by the Dalai Lama, as well as by other uh, Tibetan teachers in meditation, in insight meditation, which is a meditation in which the mind is, is purified 
and able to be brought into what they call single-pointedness so that there are no thoughts entering the mind other than one's immediate present moment and practice. And really it is through the, the training that I've received in Tibetan meditation practices that has actually helped me as an iconographer. And the meditative training that I have received has allowed me while I am practicing my iconography to be completely in that moment and completely in a moment of communion with that deity that I'm painting so that no outside thoughts come into my mind so that I'm able to be in a state of purity and awareness and awakeness and feel that the deity is directing me to paint the correct way to apply the materials correctly. And I do have prayers that I will say, whichever deity, god or goddess I'm painting, I do bring out prayers from that deity. And I will stop painting in order to chant um, the prayers to that deity. And then during the process of creation, I also take the icon panel um, to the altar and I will set the icon panel up on the altar and let it charge, let it receive the blessing of the Neturu, the gods and goddesses. So the entire process of creating an icon for me is one of attunement with, with the Neturu, with the deities. Um, but it does happen where there are days I wake up and I'm in a bad mood. My mind is not where, where it needs to be. And there are days when I've sat down and I know that my ego is getting in the way that I'm in a bad mood or that I'm not able to be where I need to be and I just don't paint. If I'm not in the place where I have to be pure, where I'm pure and I am in attunement with the nature, with the deity, then I can't do my work. And there are days where I just throw up my hands and say, that's it. I, I can't do it. I'm in a bad mood. I don't feel like doing this. I can't be mindful today. I just don't feel like it. And I'm not going to do it because that energy will be put into the icon. If an unholy person works on a holy image, then that image becomes unholy. It's very important in icons that the icon is created by a person who has followed those very strict guidelines. And that is why there are certain images that may look like icons, but they're not icons. They're not sacred. That's why I was saying that a number of artists could do what I do. Sure. They could look at a picture of an Egyptian deity and they could create an image, but that image wouldn't necessarily be sacred or an icon. In order to be an icon, uh, that person has to be um, consecrated to the deity and has to have received training in that tradition and has to be sacrosanct, has to have a, an amount of sacredness and holiness flowing through them. Without that, an icon cannot cannot exist. Well, and it makes me think, and obviously this is a very simplified way of thinking of it, you know, but it's the, the, the person in the restaurant could make the exact same meal as the person at home, but there's that difference when you have the home-cooked meal that's infused with the love of the person versus someone who was just doing their job cooking the meal in the restaurant. And I think it's similar in seeing a painting of an image 
that was simply done by someone who was doing their art versus being able to really feel and experience the energy of an icon, even if it looked exactly the same as the other piece of art. Right, right. And that's why, I mean, we might, maybe, the, maybe everyone listening has had this experience where you've been in a museum or you've been in an art gallery, you've been shown a work of art that maybe technically it, it, it's not the most advanced, but there's such a huge power whether it's a Madonna or it's a little figurine of, of, of a god or a goddess or a sacred stone from a river or something, it gives us such an emotional reaction, a gut reaction. We know that there's power in that image. And then we've looked at other images that are very elaborately painted and that look very beautiful. And they're supposed to be of a Madonna or of a disciple or of a saint or so-and-so. And we feel absolutely nothing. Maybe why is because that, image was not painted by someone who actually was connected to the sacred. Um, and I, I think I just want to say one more thing, and that is that in the Egyptian tradition, <clears throat> sacred images are very dangerous. Um, and I say that because the Egyptian temple uh, was protected by a great system of heka or magic. And part of the architecture of the temple uh, was the so-called Temenos wall, uh, which was an undulating wall with crenellations that surrounded the entire complex. The Egyptians believed that awakened cult images and awakened sacred places, in a way, were opportunities for chaos as much as they were for the order, for ma'at, that the forces of chaos would try to enter into our world through those open sacred gateways so opening sacred images and having these awakened images was very dangerous. They had to be taken seriously. They had to, certain rites and rituals had to be done all the time. And when you create these sacred images, my experience is that it is a very violent act. Um, I don't know how to describe it other than, than childbirth. Um, the outcome is very joyful, but the experience is very violent and painful when I create these icons, um, I do feel the forces of chaos. I do sometimes feel actively that, that there are forces working against me. They do not want these Mecheru, these gods and goddesses coming into this world. And um, my icons are dangerous. They're open portals uh, to the realm of the Mecheru. And that is why they can only be owned by someone who is... Uh, um, who is qualified cultically to maintain the rites and rituals. And I have said no. Um, there have been people who've offered me a lot of money to do commissions, and I've turned them down because I know that they're not doing it for cultic reasons. Uh, they just want something beautiful and Egyptian that they think is fascinating, and they have a lot of money, and they want one of my icons. So um, I, I've said no before to people because my icons can't be owned by anybody. They can only be owned by people who understand what they're getting, uh, who understand how to use them, uh, and who will use them the right way. And, and I think that that speaks to, and it also made me think when you were talking a while ago when you would sit down and if you were in a bad mood, you knew not to paint in that moment. Yep. And, you know, maybe that comes from some of the Buddhist training, but it really is that indication of discernment. 
that a lot a lot of people in general, not just artists, but I think a lot of people don't necessarily exercise as well as they should and don't recognize the, like you were saying, almost the danger of the energy that they are bringing or putting into something and how that affects what happens from there that could be traced back to perhaps their need to be able to say no or not at this time or maybe I'm not in the right space to do this at this moment. Exactly, but but I think I think actually I want to say that yes, my mindfulness has been impacted by my 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 Tibetan Buddhist training, but I do want to say that actually in the Egyptian tradition the idea of being pure when one is working with divine images is absolutely there when the the ceremony known as the opening of the mouth or the the wen ra ceremony when that was done we know from the the cultic texts that the the people the priests who are also artisans who are performing that ceremony when they did it we know they had to go through ritual purifications and the image itself for example had to be sat on pure sand facing south um the the opening of mouth ceremony requires tremendous purity in order to perform it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that is a ceremony that I perform. Um, the Wen Ra or opening of mouth ceremony is performed on each of my icons um, and is a very long and involved ceremony. Um, it takes me about three and a half hours actually to perform it um, on my icons. And I'm absolutely exhausted when, when I'm done. Um, and I will. I, I would like to say something interesting about my icons. That I've had supernatural experiences, but not only me, but other people have had supernatural experiences with my icons. Um, the people who frame my icons, uh, who are not who are not necessarily comedic. They're very very spiritual, uh, but they have talked about how my icons have impacted them, and they've shared experiences of, of things that to me sound very supernatural. Uh, I've had people who were atheists who did not believe who uh, in anything who said they've had renewals of faith by coming into contact with one of my original icons. Um, the very big panel that, that I've been working on of, of Asset queen of magic, um, which I'm still working on um, has was set up in my studio and, and somebody had happened to come through which I don't usually allow, but he happened to be there um, and he, he was discussing spirituality with me and he had had a crisis of faith and he stood in front of that image and said that just standing in front of that image for him had totally renewed his his faith in the gods and he, he totally changed himself after that. I've had people who are totally atheists say that they experience energy and, and goosebumps, electricity, when they saw um, one of my icons, even an image of it, just a picture on the internet. Um, and absolutely, I, I don't think that anybody can see one of my icons. Anyone who has half a, a heart, who's half human, and not feel something, not recognize that there is something there that is, that is beyond just an artist at work who's, you know, set down paint. My images are much more than the sum of their parts, uh, that's for sure. And so speaking of spiritual experiences, maybe you can give us just a little bit of insight into how you traversed the journey from 
evangelical Christian upbringing to comedic reconstructionist? Wow. Um, what a long journey. What an amazing journey that I've had. I've, I've written about this a lot. Um, I was raised in an impossible family. My family actually is, is, is more known for its evangelical, fiercely evangelical uh, Christian members. All of the male members of my family, going back many generations, have always have all been evangelical uh, Christians, fervent evangelical Christianity has been the seat and root of my family. That's how I was raised. Um, and I, when I was six years old, I, I um, discovered in one, of, in, in one of the books in my father's library, um, a book that had uh, full color pictures of, of Egyptian um, temples gods and gods, statues of the gods and goddesses reliefs. And from the moment I opened those pages, I, I, I was struck with such a fierce feeling of familiarity. And um, all I can say is that I uh, 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 call it past life memory, call it whatever you will. From that time, from when I was six years old, when I saw those pictures, I recognized that these were my gods. I recognized that, that this was the culture I came from, and I desperately wanted to be reunited with it. Um, and I did everything I could, looked for every book, every resource that I could to find a way to understand who these gods were, who these people were who built these temples and made this incredible art created this incredible visual culture that was sacred and, and so profound. Um, something that I, I, I know this is important to other people because I've been told this recently. So I, I will just say this. Um, art in general, I think, has an amazing ability to heal. People who teach art therapy, people who uh, study art therapy understand this, that art can be used to access things within ourselves that we need to work with or need to deal with or express emotions or our way of dealing with very painful experiences. So art as therapy is something that, that many um, therapists who are also art teachers do get into that. Um, it's something I've studied, but I want to say that my investigation and study of the art of ancient Egypt as therapy is something also that that I was led into at a very young age because of not only the fiercely evangelical family I was raised in, that's how I was raised, but also because um, I am an adult survivor of childhood incest. Uh, my father began an incestuous relationship with me uh, before I, I entered puberty when I was very young. Uh, con it continued throughout my adult life. Um, and aside from from the sexual violation, uh, my father was was also very emotionally and physically abusive, not only to myself but to all my family. And for me, when I discovered Egyptian art in particular, there was something about it that allowed me to transcend the physical experiences that were bringing trauma to me, 
um, there was something about this culture that believed to me, to my mind at the time, it was amazing. They, they had an incredible physical presence and they preserved their bodies through mummification. But the Egyptians believed in more than one aspect to our identity. They believed in the Ba and the Ka and the Sekhem and the Kat and all these different aspects that the Egyptians wrote about and dealt with, these subtle bodies that were separate as well as linked to the physical body, but they were these other areas that were, were their own independent spiritual bodies. And this is something very much con- conveyed in their art, their sacred art. And that allowed me to transcend these experiences. I was able to remain a whole person. I was able to transcend these traumas by living ancient Egyptian art, by making Egyptian art a daily experience for me that became a spiritual experience. I was able to transcend the physical brutality, um, which was quite brutal. I'm very fortunate to be alive. Um, Really, the only way I came out of it was through the art of ancient Egypt, the deep spiritual quality that called to me. Um, Then when I was nine years old, through a lot of synchronicities and coincidences that are really too long to go into, but basically... Um, by chance, if you will, nothing is by chance, but um, in San Diego, I stumbled upon a art studio whose owner was very close friends with Lady Lorian Vignet, who founded uh, the Isis Oasis Sanctuary uh, and the Temple of Isis California in Geyserville. And uh, this lady, Maxine Durgans, her and her husband owned the sculpture studio uh, that was carrying uh, replicas of the Tutankhamun treasures, as well as uh, many Egyptian deity statues. And uh, I was about n- almost nine years old and uh, had a conversation with the owner. And she said, oh, I know this lady who owns this amazing place. She's a priestess of Isis. You've got to be put in contact with her. So she gave me Lady Lorian's telephone number and address. I called her. Uh, We had a four-hour conversation on the phone the first time I talked, and she said, well, you just must be initiated. Um, She said, you definitely have had past lives in ancient Egypt, and for someone of your young age to already know uh, some of Egyptian hieroglyphs and to have these feelings of past life memory, you just must be initiated. So uh, through attunement, Lady Lorian and her partner, Paul Ramses, initiated me into the ISIS Society for Inspirational Studies. And... I'm going to tell you that Lady Lorian saved my life um, because I knew from a young age, from the time I was six years old, I started praying to Egyptian deities, even though I didn't know who they were. I, I saw these statues of Isis in these books, and I just remember, before I knew the Egyptian names for the gods, I remember praying to Isis, and I remember looking at these statues, and I would prop the books up, and I would pray to Isis, and I would say, Isis, whoever you are, could you please let me know who you are? Could you come into my life? Could you please help me? And I always felt first that that Aset, that Isis, came into my life 
to save me. Um, she was my savior. I, I feel that she saved me from the darkness of my 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 childhood and by sending Lady Lorion to me because it was only through Lady Lorion's tutelage that I was actually able to express to someone my belief in the Egyptian religion uh, and to have somebody to talk to who didn't think I was crazy, who who uh, would accept that I believed in this ancient religion. Uh, my father was very dogmatic, as well as my mother in her own way. Um, and here it was that I was, I also went to Catholic school. My parents put me into Catholic school when I was in grade school. Um, and I was given a very, you know, strict Catholic um, education. Um, and that included religious training. Um, and in the, in the Catholic um, uh, tradition and it was very damaging to me to have to do that because I never believed in any of it. And um, Lady Lorion and the ISIS Society for Inspirational Studies, uh, Paul Ramses, who also was, was her partner in that, both of them took me under their wing and directed me towards uh, authors like Murray Hope. If you're familiar with Murray Hope, she wrote a book on Egyptian magic. And I know they're more new age. And that was initially how it, it was not comedic reconstructionism. It was it was more goddess thought, new thought, new age thought. Um, but Lady Lorian had been to Egypt. She went for many years, and um, she introduced me to all different kinds of authors, uh, to the tarot, to um, interestingly enough, to Anton Lavey. Um, Lady Lorian had been, uh, I don't know if many people know this, but who know Lady Lorian, but she actually was with Anton LaVey before he founded the Church of Satan. Uh, she was a very close friend of his and had a lot of his material before Church of Satan ever came into being. Um, Lady Lorian uh, sent me, actually, a lot of um, things that were written by LaVey uh, previous to any of his satanic um, writings. And so Lady Lorian introduced me to a lot of different uh, uh, a lot of different areas of thought and investigation, and then she introduced me to um, Lady Olivia Robertson, the founder of uh, the co-founder of the, the International Fellowship of ISIS, um, before my tenth birthday, and I started writing to Lady Olivia, and she initiated me into the Fellowship of ISIS also through attunement just like Lady Lorian had done. Um, Lady uh, Olivia and her brother uh, did a ceremony for me through attunement uh, at Colonial Castle, Ireland, um, in which they took me through the uh, Assyrian mysteries of Isis and Osiris and the mystery um, of the birth of Horus and did a beautiful initiation for me. So initially, all of my areas of study were not what could be called comedic reconstructionism. They were more new age. Um, that was what I had access to. And I'm very grateful for Lady Lorian and for Lady Olivia, who later, later ordained me as a priest of Isis. Um, I am very grateful for the training I received and for the years and years of experience that, that they gave me. Um, human rights and human rights activism is something that I've been involved in for many years. And interfaith dialogue is something that's been very important to me. And I, I became involved in um, the campaign for Tibet um, 
when I was, I, I started kind of looking at their literature and, and their, their stance on human rights when I, when I was in, in high school. And um, that really kind of led me to, to um, investigating some materials uh, in Tibetan Buddhism and, and, of course, the Dalai Lama and his, his books and his writings. And I found in the Dalai Lama and his stance on human rights I found something that struck a chord very deep in me, but also I, I have always had a, a deep feeling for Tibet. I, I do feel, I have always been very strongly connected with Tibet, its language, its history, and its, its religious organization um, and communities. The Dalai Lama is to me the preeminent representative of the very best of Tibetan culture, as well as the very best of, of of what t- Tibetan Buddhism can offer um, individuals. I'd like to say that I don't think of Tibetan Buddhism as a religion. It's non-theistic. Tibetan religion does not acknowledge a god or a creator. Um, it recognizes what it calls deities, but these are not gods and goddesses in the theistic creative sense of other religions. Um, the deities that are approached in, in Tibetan Buddhism are meditation forms that are manifestations of our own mind. So people can be of any religion or spirituality or atheist and also um, benefit from the teachings in Tibetan Buddhism. But I, through the work I was doing, I came into contact with the the office of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, um, and I was invited to come and in 1999 and, and to take part in initiations and talks and teachings that His Holiness was offering to students, as well as some to the public. So the Office of Tibet sponsored me um, to come and hear His Holiness the Dalai Lama and as well as to receive initiation at the end of a series of talks and teachings. And that was very transformative for me. Very, uh, It was deeply impacting of me because for many years I I read His Holiness, the Dalai Lama's teachings, and um, I really felt strongly that um, Tibetan Buddhism had been a presence in my life that had helped me also to heal um, the anger and the animosity that I felt against my father and what he did to me. Really, Tibetan Buddhism gave me a path to liberation from so much of what happened to me when I was a child, and the Dalai Lama's teachings on nonviolence became instrumental to my life as far as trying to develop a personality of not being angry anymore, not wanting revenge, um, of, of seeing the benefit of living nonviolently and thinking nonviolently, trying to deal with our anger in a constructive way. And the Dalai Lama, I felt... He also saved me, whether he realized it or not, the Dalai Lama saved me from um, self-destruction. So I had the opportunity to actually be initiated by His Holiness in person and um, through one of his his young monks that I met who, who took a liking to me. And then I was invited again. I was invited back in 2000 when His Holiness was giving initiation. So I received empowerments from the Dalai Lama as well. And teachings um, from him, and I I regard them as part of my spiritual practice. They're separate from my other p- 
practice is I don't believe in blending traditions. I don't believe in mixing my comedic work with my Tibetan work. I also am initiated in other uh, in other uh, pagan traditions, um, and I don't blend those together. I keep them very separate. I guess I, I you could say I'm an accidental comedic reconstructionist. That's what I told Richard Reedy. Um, he's the author of Eternal Egypt. He's a, a dear colleague of mine. Uh, he's someone who's helped me greatly in my um, mission to become a comedic reconstructionist and do it correctly. Um, I was with the Ammonite Foundation uh, for a number of years. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar many of your readers may or may not be, but the Ammonite Foundation are, are a group in Cairo, Egypt, who claims to be the last living remnant of the Egyptian religion, Jonathan Cotts wrote um, a, wrote in his book Isis and Osiris. He devoted a chapter to the Ammonite Foundation. Um, I was a longtime student of theirs. I studied. I, I, I estimate. I think seven years, six or seven years. I studied with them. I'd have to look at the dates and double check, but I did write about it on my blog. But to my memory, six or seven years. I almost became went to Egypt and became a priest under the Ammonites and. Um, when I was with the Ammonite Foundation, I think that really directed me more at trying to uncover the ancient texts and actually reconstruct the Egyptian religion as close as possible to how the Egyptians themselves uh, practiced it. And it's more been something that the past 10 years specifically, so if you want to say I'm a newbie at it, that's fine. But I would say, even though I've been practicing, uh, um, I would say as a comedic, as a follower of the Netru for 35 years, um, it's really only been in the past 10 years that I focused exclusively as a comedic reconstructionist and really striving to uncover the authentic texts. And Richard Reedy is someone who, in the past a number of years has really been an asset to me. He's really helped me, giving me resources and 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 directing me towards uh, academic sources that are reliable. Um, it's something that just has evolved, really. So I guess in a nutshell, that's my path spiritually over 35 years. I mean, I've left a lot out, but what can I, you know, we are limited with our time. So um, that's just kind of giving you a broad overview and I think that's the perfect segue as we move to the conclusion of our conversation. There is something that I do with each guest, which is pose a question that a previous guest has asked, not knowing who it would be asked of. Um, mm -hmm. And then I will ask you for a question for a future guest. And okay. I think that the the question that I have from my previous guest, uh, Mary Electra, who is a, a sound healer, um, is is a, a perfect follow-up to what you were just talking about. So I'm going to ask you this question. What do you consider to be the keys to enlightenment? Wow. That is the best question I've been asked in a really long time. I love that. Firstly, I, I would say awareness. Um, what is awareness? Investigation into the nature of things um, is is one of, I think, the most important keys. That's what awareness is. When we investigate into the true nature of things, ourselves, the things that we, we relate to, when we 
are aware of our true nature, of where our feelings come from, of where our reactions to other people come from, our, our relationship with our world around us, when we become aware of those things, that that's really the, the foundation. Second, diligence, uh, effort. Diligence in our pursuit to refine ourselves, to refine our awareness and our understanding. We have to constantly make effort to do that. We cannot achieve enlightenment without diligence in in, an effort. It has to be every single moment, every single day if we can. And I would say a focus on the union between the heart and mind, Um, meaning our emotions and our intellect. If we only use our cerebral faculties and our intellect, I think we're also ignoring the emotional state because so much of what happens to us is because of our, our reaction emotionally to things. So we also have to be very, very aware of our emotions as well as our thought processes. So if we unify those things, create a union between the heart and mind, the emotions and intellect, then I think that is also a very important vehicle. So that that's my answer. I think it's very, very simple. And I think that last point that you made is also very comedic because the Egyptians yeah. saw the heart as both the seat of intellect and emotion. Uh, yeah, is what I call the divine intelligence of the heart. That's what that's what I call it. So do you have a question that you would like to put forth for a future guest to respond to? Uh, sure. How about this? Take this on for size. How can humankind be co-creators with the gods? I'll throw that out there because it's something I'm dealing with actually in, in discussions I'm having lately with people. So I'd be interested to hear the response. All right. Well, and I think that you're already engaging in that to some extent through the work that you do and the way that you do it. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so could you maybe let us know if there are any appearances, workshops, or where people can see your art, whether it's online and or in person, or how they can get in touch with you if they were interested in commissioning a piece? I invite anyone to contact me uh, regarding my work through through my, my website and my blog. Um, my work right now, I am formulating doing a comedic sacred exhibition in the future. I'm working on a collection, a new collection of, of deities, of comedic deities right now that are not commissions. They will not be sold. Uh, I, I do plan on having an exhibition when the collection is done. And um, so other than that, my original icons are actually, of course, they're they are in uh, private temples. So they are not actually able to be seen by the public for very good reasons. Um, but online is really one of the best places to see my work. I do offer a museum quality archival prints of all of my icons through my website, through my store, um, which are reasonably priced at $75, and and that gives everyone access to them. Um, Right now, regarding commissions, um, I'm creating a series of deities that um, I'm if I sell them, I would only sell them. They're a series of four triptychs, so four triptychs of three panels each. Um, I would sell them together. Um, but if, if anyone who has questions about my work, I absolutely am always open to discussing 
any of my work or the possibility of commissions uh, with anyone. Absolutely. Um, I'm a poet. A lot of people don't know that I am. I do have a book uh, coming out that I am going to uh, let people know through my blogs or through my Facebook. Uh, it is called I Could Ring That Sparrow's Neck, Verses on Love, Death, and Immortality, uh, being published by Maverick Reads. Uh, and that book deals with actually death and reincarnation as well as um, it has a, a romance and our relationship with the sacred and living in a, a physical body, but also being sexual beings and spiritual beings. And um, it's impacted a lot by my comedic work, even though it doesn't directly reference it. So I'm excited about that book coming out. And just so people can find you, your website is Icons of Comet, which is I-C-O-N-S-O-F-K-M as in Mary, T as in Tom, dot com. Yes. Uh, or they can find you on Facebook by just doing a search for Patamasu. Yes, which... or Icons of Kemet. Oh, okay. Which, and... Yeah, if, if you look up Facebook, Icons of Kemet, Kemet is spelled out, K-E-M-E-T. So look up Icons of Kemet on Facebook. Um, and I do have a page there. If you're on Twitter, um, if you look up Tomasu, uh, I'm also on Twitter. And actually, these links are on my website um, under Iconographer. You can find my Twitter link and my Facebook link um, a as well. So um, I also have a blog, um, which is iconsofchemet.blogspot.com. Um, and that's Icons of Kemet spelled out, K-E-M-E-T. People are welcome to look there also. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. A thousand gratitudes to you, Patama Sue, for joining me and spending some time here in conversation. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure. You're listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Enjoy the show. Hello, Space Cadets. This is Prometheus with your August Astro Report. We find ourselves now in terminal velocity. Defined as the highest velocity attainable by an object as it falls through the air. Which is just another way of saying... It's the fastest speed that something can reach while it's falling. Each successive era seems to accelerate at an exponential pace, and so it seems the human project is increasing in velocity towards what we are ultimately still deciding. It seems that much like the moments that demarcated the changing of eras prior, we are once again at a critical threshold in the transition between one age and the next. Here we stand now at the beginning of a new era called the Anthropocene. For the first time in the physical history of the Earth, a species of biological life it spawned is capable of amassing such an impact on the planetary regulatory systems that it could be said to be a force of nature. We humble hominids, not much different from our chimpanzee cousins, it seems, are a force formidable enough to change the very functioning of our planet. The more extreme aspect of this 
is that it seems the changes we are initiating are accelerating these processes to a point where they can easily flip into a new phase state, one that is potentially not amenable, not amenable to human thriving. And August will put these issues into a more precise focus. Red Queen to Dark Goddess, Venus retrogrades through Leo and Cancer. The retrograde will start August 4th and continue until September 24th. We begin the Venus retrograde with with the lady donning the guise of the Red Queen while she traipses through Leo, one of the more regal signs. It is always interesting that during these retrograde periods, Through this particular sign, the issues of race relations and the legacies of colonialism come painfully into focus and there's a kind of cultural reckoning. Expect more of this in the years ahead and especially now with this particular transit. The hope is that through these dramatic confrontations, the conversation around these issues can begin to change and we can move towards reconciliation and social justice. But first we have to go through the reckoning. There's no skipping developmental stages. We're having to relearn how to go native, how to inhabit the planet without destroying the systems that give us our life support, work with its processes. And if we don't, we perish, plain and simple. The dialogue is one of harmonizing relationships between each other and with the ground of being, our planet. August 4th, Venus will form a conjunction with Jupiter and bring us all into hyperdrive. The already looming issues of race and privilege in the U.S. will now balloon in their importance and prescience. This is a favorable development and will hopefully entrench the new civil rights era into our collective dialogue and will expand on similar conversations happening all over the world. August 5th, the following day, Venus forms a square to Saturn, also in retrograde. This intense dialogue will continue to escalate to the point where it will begin squaring off with authority and those placed in positions of power and privilege. This will continue to heavily influence the direction of the 2016 presidential campaigns. The following day, August 6th, sees Venus forming a conjunction with Mercury, and the voices are raised. Touching off the aspects from days prior will be the one that gives the new societal framework a louder voice. The Internet, of course, has been the principal technology that has increased the volume on these movements. Retroactive. August 2nd sees the Saturn retrograde coming to an end. Any contrivances or structures that laid their groundwork during the retrograde period will now begin to move forward and on the schedule established. The work at hand is not just the wrenching personal work of confronting the heart and its ministrations. There's also the collective work that rests at addressing, at addressing the dark heart of civilization itself. What this symbol set represents then is the acceptance of this phase of our development and holds out the promise of what is to come if we can resist the temptation to constantly service the needs of the present on the projected deficits of the future. Jupiter forms a square to Saturn on August 3rd, and there's the impulse to speak truth to power. A possible outcome of this continuing dialogue in society is the voices of those who suffer under the oppression will speak louder than those in privilege who would continue the status quo. 
A groundswell and unprecedented support could be witnessed now by all sectors of society. We must remember to not take ownership of the forum or conversation and let the voices of those who have less privilege speak for themselves. August 6th, both Mercury and Mars will square Saturn, which I call the nuclear option. It may just signal that things could get very real and definite fault lines could emerge in the politicking going forward from this day. It is also a day when the atmosphere is ripe to ask some hard questions based in a violent history. Which brings us to chaos theory. Uranus retrograde. Always an interesting time. We've been experiencing it since July 26th, and it'll be with us until December 25th. In essence, a small perturbation in the dynamics of a complex system's foundations can have major end results and a Uranus retrograde works mightily on this principle. It is quite simply that during this transit, a massive, out-of-left-field series of changes can occur at the level of foundational principles that leads to a change in phase state, much as we are doing with our planet's operating system. Some basic primers on Uranus retrograde. There's a strong need for autonomy present at these times and a tendency to break away from tradition. Circumstances are no longer guaranteed, but are subject to change at any moment. A kind of new normal. A confrontation with limitations that need to be transcended and cause trouble until we do. A change in the arrangement of affairs, which can be unnerving or thrilling depending on perspective. A new level of being. Abrupt changes, possibly disruptions, especially to the status quo, and finally, a freeing from concepts, dogmas, methods of behaving and thinking and or beliefs that are limiting to potential and flourishing. We begin to see the massive effects and changes as it pertains to all life on Earth. What is interesting to note is that the conversations started by the unaffiliated could potentially have a radical impact on existing religions. On August 2nd and August 13th, Mercury will form a trine with Uranus and the conversation amplifies. My best hope for these two transits, which Mercury and Uranus seem to make twice a month, is this, is this, that the continuing conversations around religious legitimacy, secularization, climate change, especially in light of new evidence, race, universal basic income, existential threats, and inequality will continue. These are also areas that society desperately needs to make progress on. Hopefully, in this review period, it will afford us the opportunity to do so. That the climate talks in Paris fall on a day just six days shy of the end of the retrograde is encouraging. August 19th sees Venus forming a trine to Uranus, and we are given the, Uran the, we are given the feminist perspective. An interesting feature to note about the Uranus retrograde is the possibility that this important discussion around religious veracity is being spearheaded by feminists the world over. This particular configuration is a strong symbol of this nascent and essential dialogue, which will hopefully amplify in the periods ahead. It is my sincerest hope that this dialogue will continue long after this transit, which, of course, brings us to the next outer planet, Neptune, the bearer of our science fiction dreams. Neptune has been retrograding since June 12th and will continue to do so until November 18th. Neptune retrograding is a moment to look more critically 
and objectively at our dreams of the future and begin to critique some of the grand schemes being suggested for their veracity and ability to be applied to the real world. It is easy to get lost in the techno-fantasy and forget about the hard reality of deploying these innovations onto the ground floor of experience. It is exactly this that needs to be done. Which brings us to Mercury opposing Neptune, which occurs August 12th and can make us all feel like we're a bit lost in the future. (laughs) This represents a curious conundrum. It is the needs of perception opposed to those of higher perception. If the Neptune transit represents our greatest science fiction dreams, then Mercury in opposition represents the need to communicate those on a practical level so that they can be implemented on a collective scale. The technologies and innovations that are in the supposed future need to be made available today. They cannot wait for tomorrow. These vital technologies of both a social and technical nature must be deployed now to secure a viable tomorrow and to make adaptation to rapidly changing conditions more bearable and leaving most of our societal complexity intact. Mercury is counseling that we get over the perceptual smokescreen and raise the collective voice. While we may have our head in the clouds, we need our feet firmly planted on the ground. And finally, that brings us to the last of the outer planet retrogrades, which in this case is Pluto, which we've been experiencing since April 4th and will experience until September 24th. It's a kind of global initiation where we face the extinction versus apotheosis crisis. The question is, is can humanity as a species and wearing the mantle of civilization survive outside the Holocene epoch? the era that the humanist species emerged in, which is is coming to a close, it is the pertinent question we have to answer during this wrenching transition, and it could be either our apotheosis and maturation into a truly evolved species, or it could be our extinction. We are in the process of making that choice. It is the crossroads we face. Another factor to keep in mind is that if we survive this transition and prevent our species and civilization from going over the edge, we will not be in the clear. There will still be massive mitigation and adaptation crises in the centuries ahead and still some risk of extinction. What will be different is that we will have greatly reduced the probability of that happening and, of course, given other life forms a fighting chance. Granted, the great rewilding effort of Earth will probably be the key issue that defines the 22nd century. August 15th has Mercury forming a trine to Pluto, raising the voice on existential threats. Pluto represents the evolutionary catalyst, the force that puts the blowtorch next to the collective cheek and encourages us to make 11th hour concessions that radically and irreversibly change our course. Under these auspices, the conversation around collective as existential threats is heightened in importance. Nick Bostrom is a modern philosopher who intensively focuses on these issues and is a leading proponent. Another way that we can all take action is to sign the petition that the Future of Life Institute has been circulating to address research priorities towards as existential threats facing humanity. The five biggest are climate change, superintelligence, nanotechnology, nuclear war, and a bioengineered pandemic. We'll finish out the month of August 
on the 29th with a full moon in Capricorn. I call this space opera. What's interesting is that this is a take-no-prisoners type of lunation. It deals with pragmatism in the extreme. And we are certainly living through times where a practical, rational, and brokering no-bullshit position is the one that will carry the zeitgeist. That said, it is a lunar arc that gets things down to the brass tacks. We are living through some interesting times, which are no doubt truly epical, and we can't afford to sleepwalk into the future. But we must face it fearly, with all of our faculties at our command, and that space, cadets, is what I will leave you with this month. If you'd like to learn more, please visit my blog at flyingpunkrockunicorn.com. You can also find me on Facebook at Prometheus the Astrologer. I'll see you all next month. Travel well, star travelers. Listening to Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers on Firefly Willows Live. And that brings us to our segment in the show where you have a chance to receive a reading live on the air by either Skyping from the show page or calling 646 716 5510. So we will our Caller who has been patiently waiting. This is someone calling from area code 858. Are you there, Hello. caller? Hi, hi, C. How are you doing? I am good. How are you? Can you tell us your name and where you're calling from? Sure. My name is Roxana. I'm calling from California. All right. And welcome to the show today. What is it that we could look at for you? Well, I would like to ask you about my future love life, especially there is a person that doesn't communicate with me at this time. We don't see each other, but I would really like to get back into relationship with this man. Okay. So, let's see. So is you say that this person isn't in communication with you is that yes. by yes. your choice or their choice? Well, something has happened between us. I have, I don't know, we had a small argument a while ago, but it's been a few months. He doesn't talk to me. I don't see him and I don't know. We didn't But within, do, and do you do you have a way of contacting him? He's okay. He's well. He's alive. I don't want to contact him if he prefers not to talk to me. I feel that it's it's his decision in this situation. So uh, the the reason I'm asking that 
is because um, we're in what's called a Venus retrograde period right now, and that'll go through September 6th. And that is a period that can either people or relationships from the, the past may come back into our life. It's also a time when we may revisit or rekindle something. Um, now, that doesn't mean that it's necessarily for the relationship to start up again. Sometimes it means it's a way of closure or something like that. But that would mean that this can be a time when getting back in touch with someone can be particularly recommended or or this is a, a particularly receptive time to do that. And I say that for two reasons. One, because of the Venus retrograde. And two, because the card that came up representing this other person is the Ace of Cups. And the Ace of Cups can be a, a card that represents receptivity. So even if it was just a, a gentle hello message from you, this might be the time, especially before September 6th, this might be the time for you to send a note or uh, an email or, or something. And it can just be a note that says, haven't talked to you in a while, just wanted to uh, say hello, just wanted to check, see if you're okay, and you know, leave it at that. That simply opens the door for them to perhaps then contact you. Sometimes regardless Hi. of who it was. Yes? Okay. I'm, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. The problem that my point is, if he wants, if there will be a relationship, it should come from him, not from me. I was doing too much work, I think, previously. And at this point, I left the ball in his court. I didn't want to be the one that initiates future if there is a future relationship for us if if it's not then it will be well and that's why that that's why i was saying it could just be a gentle hello it's not about sending a note saying i think it's time that we revisit this or talk about this or you know do we want to see about restarting this all it's doing is it's opening the door because what venus retrograde is also really good for is recognizing whether it's time for closure of something. So if you just sent a little note that said hello and you didn't hear a response back, take that as a clear indication that this relationship is done and it's now time for me to look forward and to stop thinking about, worrying about, wondering about this person or this relationship. Because I feel it this way. If I won't do this, if I will, con will not contact him, is there a future for us if if we will be back in the relationship or we will not? So the the other cards that are here would, would pretty much say no. Okay. So he's not interested in me anymore, right? That's my understanding. Um, there's not a... I mean, the Ace of Cups can indicate that there may be still interest and... So like you sending the note, it's like when people have an argument and regardless of who is at fault, both people may feel awkward or uncomfortable about initiating conversation after that, waiting for the other person to do so just to say, okay, we're at a point where we can talk about this now and then it never gets talked about because nobody ever wants to initiate. <laughs> um, so th that's why just sending a, a quick, brief little note that simply says, 
The door is unlocked if you would like to come in, but now it's still on them to really initiate more of a conversation. All you've done is say, the door is open if you choose to come in. And if they don't, then we get a clear indication. Because but, the reason for the argument was he didn't spend much time with me. So that's why I was already uh, kind of ready to close the door and I left it to him to decide if he would want to spend more time and be in the in the relationship with me or he is not interested. Well, so the the card that came up for you is the reversed six of cups. Uh, sorry, the the reversed six of wands, and the card that came up for the relationship is the reversed page of wands. So when you have a, a page, page represents traditionally it would represent like the child aspect. So it represents new beginnings of something, and the reversal of it would indicate that there doesn't seem to be a lot of enthusiasm or a lot of willingness to put much energy towards doing this. And and the reverse page of wands can also say that it's almost like you're dealing with a spoiled child um, who is a little bit egocentric. Uh, so they, it's almost as if they won't make the first overture just out of ego and principle, um, even though the Ace of Cups would show there still is perhaps an, a, a receptivity there to the idea. But if you if you feel you need to do that. I'm sorry, could you please say again? Uh, Hello? Uh, I see. I couldn't hear. What did you say? Uh, uh, you were brought... Part? Which, oh, which every, uh, probably the last minute what you were saying, I could only hear a sound but nothing else. Uh, okay. So so for you, we have the reversed six of wands. And for the relationship, we have the reversed page of wands. And reversing the page of wands can show us that um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of spark left in this relationship. There doesn't seem to be a lot. Uh, again, thing it's hard to hear you. So, in other words, let me just to uh, say what I try to understand. So, there is no spark left in this relationship. There is no interest left in this relationship from this person to me, right? Well, I, I think that this person is still a bit ego-oriented, and so they're they're just. If you needed them to be the one to finally show that they were interested in this relationship by being the one to make the first effort to get back in touch with you, then this Venus retrograde period says this is the time for closure. We we look at that. We accept that. If that doesn't, I'll give it a time frame. We'll say if it doesn't happen by September 6th that you hear from this person, then you know for sure that this is done and it's time to put it behind you, and it's time to start looking forward and seeing what other opportunities there are rather than waiting around for this. Okay. I'm not actually waiting. I just thought that maybe things will change and this person well, would be interested. Well, take the idea of waiting as, 
wondering, hoping, um, continuing to to check and see if they've contacted us. It's it's not that you're waiting around in in the sense of <laughs> never leaving your house and staring at your computer or your phone for a message, but it's it's more a sense of if you haven't heard from them by September sixth, then it's time to put them into a memory that is behind you and no longer worry about them or even really think about revisiting that relationship and just moving on. So if he contacts me, let's say, at the end of September, it's not going to work, right? Right. Because the the, the key thing here would be that there would be a, a reestablishment of communication before September 6th. Mm. That's that's what would give us the clear indication this is something that is worth revisiting or still has something um, that is worthwhile for us to put energy towards seeing what might happen. If it doesn't happen before September 6th, then we need to just be done with it and move on. And even if they do contact us after that, it probably would not really be in our best interest to try to revisit it. It, it, it would have been too long and it's time to just move on. Mm-hmm. But the general, in general, cards they don't look good, even if I contact this person, right? Like, it, well, yes. Well. I mean, the fact that the page of wands is reversed for the relationship, and even the page—I mean, the six of wands reversed for you. The six of wands is a card of victory, and it's also a card based on what it is that you were saying that you were needing from him. It—it's a card that represents acknowledgement from somebody else. It represents being recognized for who we are, what we have to contribute. So the fact that it's reversed would show us we're probably, A, not going to be very successful in uh, accomplishing what we're trying to do, and B, we're probably not going to get the kind of recognition or acknowledgement that we are wanting or needing or deserving, which goes right to what it is that seems to have been the big issue in the first place of him wanting to spend more time with you and, and recognizing your importance in his life and that kind of thing. So th- there isn't much indication that that's going to happen or that that's really still existing as a possibility. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's, that would be the final outcome, right? Yes, because the page of wands reverse, if you think of the pages as children, anytime you have mm-hmm. a reverse, of a page, then it's a sense of this is not going to take hold. Think of it like pregnancy. The reversal of it says it 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 it, it gets it, um, it miscarries, so okay. it doesn't come to full term. So even if we do put more energy into this, it might spark for a while, but it's going to fizzle out. It's not going to last. And so it may not really even be worth the energy or the effort or the time at this point because not a lot is really going to change. There could be this burst of suddenly it feels as if he's giving you more attention, but then that'll fade away and it'll go back to the way things were. Mm-hmm. understand. Thank you so much, Heise. I really appreciate your reading. It was very nice of you. Um, your You're readings well. are very detailed and I like them. Thank you for the show also. You're welcome. Thank you for listening and for your patience waiting. Uh, bye-bye. Enjoy Sunday. <laughs> you enjoy your weekend. All right. Bye.
And that's going to bring us to the close of our show for this month. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to hopefully encourage you to join me again here next month. Uh, Revolution airs every second Sunday of the month, so our next show will be on Sunday, September 13th. My name is Hi C. You can find out more about me uh, at tarotbyhighc.net. You can find out more about the show um, at Revolution. Uh, well, you can just go on Facebook and search for Revolution with Hi C. Uh, you can sign up for the Firefly Willows Live newsletter if you want to be informed of not only this show, but all of the shows that we have for upcoming episodes. And you can always listen to past shows. Uh, either here on Blog Talk Radio or under blogtalkradio.com slash Firefly Willows Live. Or you can go to iTunes, search for Firefly Willows Live, and you can find all of the shows there for listening, downloading, or subscribe as a podcast and then automatically get them. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me for a more in-depth session for a longer reading for a private session, you can do so by either emailing me HIC, H-I-C, at tarotbyhighc.net, or you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash tarotbyhighc, uh, or just search for tarotbyhighc, and you will find my page there, and you can easily find out more information and I will look forward to being with you here next month. Uh, if you'd like to hear a little bit more, or if you're interested in... Thank you for joining us. Revolution with host Heisey Lutmers, brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at facebook.com slash revolution with Heisey. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for Amethyst Oracle, Divination with a Queer Twist with Heisey Lutmers and Charlie Harrington, Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. (laughs) 